Hello, everyone. My name is Ian Rowe. And I'm Nike Fajors. And welcome to The Invisible Men, where we make the achievements of incredible men invisible no more. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of The Invisible Men. My name is Ian Rowe, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, I'm Nike Fajors, a member of the Leadership Network at AEI. And Nike, as always, it's great to see you. And uh, for our viewers, as you know, we love to focus on black excellence, you know, trying to bring forth individuals who are doing great work that you may not know of, but are just very special people whose story needs to be told. And very excited today to be joined by Delano Squires. Hey, Delano, how are you doing? Hey, guys, how are you doing? Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, yeah. So, Delano, you are a rising star. You're a writer. I've been seeing your work. People are talking about your content. You're a writer at The Federalist, and your work has appeared elsewhere. And we thought it would be great to have you on just to talk about the things that you are writing about, which we'll get to. But before we get there, just tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, any sort of defining moments as you, uh, you know, young Delano before you were the rising star that you are now? <laughs> um, sure. So I'm uh, from New York. I grew up in New York in Queens. And um, I, you know, was a kid who did well in school, typically didn't live up to my potential. So, you know, my, my dad, who was the chief education officer in our home, um, <laughs> rode, rode me a lot. He rode me a lot as a kid. And um, graduated from Benjamin Cardoza High School, um, went off to University of Pittsburgh, studied engineering, um, okay. made it through engineering. I wasn't the best engineer, but but I made it through. Right, graduated cum laude, and um, okay. you graduate. Uh, what did you say? Barely made it through, and you graduated cum laude. All right, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a, a, a lot of sociology and psychology classes that you know. Okay, fluffed okay. up my GPA a little bit, but um, okay. all right. But, but I studied computer engineering and, and I didn't realize it at the time, but that would be really helpful for me as a writer and me as a thinker, um, as, a, as a person who, whose bend is more analytical um, than artistic, let's say. So um, I did that, struggled to find work for a while, wanted to be a consultant. None of those opportunities came through. Um, bounced around between odd jobs. At one point I worked at Saks Fifth Avenue at another point, I worked at a company that made products for Claire's. So if you all have daughters, you've probably been in Claire's. They sell, you know, earrings and, you know, yeah. fake jewelry and those types of things. I'm trying to keep my daughter out of those for now, but, but yeah. we'll, we'll get there. So so I, I bounced around for, for quite some time. I ended up, you know, in D.C. Um, and ended up working for D.C. government, um, doing a lot of community facing work. And, and so that's what I do sort of my, my day job. But um, around tw 2008 or nine, um, I, I had an idea that I want to write. So I, I wasn't, you know, I didn't grow up writing. I wasn't an English lit major or anything like that. But I first pitched an article to The Root. And this was after, it was an unfortunate incident. It was, it was after Steve McNair, if you all are football fans. Yeah, remember it well. passed away. Yeah, so... And the topic was about what happens when, um, when men, I guess, are unfaithful and sort of fall down and, and um, I guess don't live up to their responsibilities to their wives and their children and how the, the after effects of that. Because as you know, he, he was killed by his then girlfriend. Um, it was a murder-suicide. Very, very sad story. Um, the Root didn't take it. And I pitched it to a site called Black and Married with Kids that I just happened to come across. And they took it and they said, hey, if you have any other ideas, you can send them. So I started to write more. At the time, I was the only single person writing for Black and Married with Kids. And people would say, you're, you're not married. You don't have kids. And I said, well, I'm black. So the B, you know, goes a, a fair, you know, fairly long way. Right. So, so I did that for a number of years. I wrote on different issues in culture on colorism, on faith and dating, a, a bunch of different things. And the couple that started that website, Ronnie Lamar Tyler, um, also did documentaries. And their th third documentary, they saved me a seat in DC. 
and I came. It was called Men Ain't Boys. It was talking about men and manhood. And I sat on the same row as a, as a young lady who was there. And she would later become my wife. So All right. um, we met there. We, we settled in D.C., um, you know, started to raise our family. And through that time, I wrote, I continued to write for Black and Married with Kids. I wrote for The Root. I wrote for The Griot. And eventually, as those sites change sort of, ed, you know, the editorial direction and changing their content direction, um, and as I began to grow mature, and particularly in, in my faith, in my Christian faith, I felt like I needed a different outlet. And um, that's when I pitched an article to The Federalist. And the title of that article, the title I sent them was Black America's white, Other White Supremacy Problem. And um, they changed it to, uh, I think it was something along the lines of um, issues of revolving black people don't always have to, you know, center on white people, something to that effect. I'm not, I don't have the, the title off offhand. And that's re really got me started writing from the Federalist. And um, through the years, I've seen some of my ideas, you know, evolve, but ultimately I'm still the same kid that came up around um, families. I was raised in the type of village that people talk about. So my parents who got married young and we stayed with aunts and uncles and we had a, a church family. So whenever someone bought a new house, we, we would go there and help them get it prepared. And I spent time with, you know, my friends from church and all almost all of the men were tradesmen. So, you know, my all of us, you know, were West, are West Indian. So, you know, my family came from Barbados. Um, nobody came over with a doctorate, nobody with, you know, extensive professional training. All the men worked, all the men were tradesmen, carpenters, electricians, masons. So that's the type of world that I grew up in. And I realized that that world is quickly, it feels like it's slipping away. So wow, I just started wow. to start writing because I felt like I had something to say and I felt like it would add to the public discourse and the public dialogue. And what was it about the Steve McNair incident that that led you to say, "This is this should be my first this should be my first public expression"? Um, I I think it was seeing the impact that his decisions, and in hindsight, when I think about it, this might not have been the most sensitive article to write, you know, so soon after his death. Yeah. But but what hit me was that the decisions that he made as a husband and father had a tremendous impact on his wife and children. Um, and I tend to think about that because a big theme in my life and my work is, is responsibility. And I think of responsibility similar to, you know, some of the laws of physics where once created is never, it's never destroyed. It's just transferred from one body to the next, but every time it gets moved, some of it starts to fizzle away. So when, when he did do what he was supposed to do, um, it was his wife and children who felt the, the the after effects, and that that struck me. And I feel like that's the that's what happens all the time. So when men men in general, not I'm not this is not a race specific thing, and I try to not I'm not a racial essentialist, right? So I tend I don't believe that any vices or virtues inherent to any ethnicity or skin color. Yep. But when men in general fail to fulfill their responsibilities, someone has to pick it up. And I think particularly in the African-American community, we've seen what that's looked like for the last 50, 60 years. And um, so, so that's really why I, I started there is because I, I saw the impact that it had on him, um, not on, obviously him specifically, but also on, on his family when, when he wasn't there. And just for our viewers and listeners, so Steve McNair, if I remember correctly, went to a historically black college in Mississippi. Yes. Every record and didn't get drafted in the NFL at that time, you know, was still kind of reshaping black mm -hmm. quarterbacks into cornerbacks mm -hmm. or running backs or wide mm -hmm. receivers. And he, he held true to, uh, no, I'm going to be a leader. I'm going to be yes. a quarterback. And you know, was within a yard of winning a Super Bowl, Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. maybe Super Bowl 92, 93, something like that. We were in business school. I, mean, I went to a Super Bowl party and <laughs> lost. Um, so he, he, he really did touch. I was very touched by that loss. Yes. So it really, really was meaningful. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, you know, so two weeks ago, the CDC, you know, every year they produce the uh, – 
what's called the, the final birth data. You know, all the, the analysis of how many babies were born, the number of babies born outside of marriage and all that. And so once again, for I think almost the 12th consecutive year, 40% of all babies in the United States are born outside of marriage. And then particularly for age 24 and under, I think the data was for the year 2019, the non-marital birth rate was about 71% for women mm. 24 and under mm. black community was 91 percent yeah when you when you hear numbers like that and i and i hear your point this is not just an issue within the black community mm-hmm. it's, it's really you know the 40 percent it represents all births I and mean, it's just staggering but when you hear that kind of data mm-hmm. what's your reaction and why do, and why why do you think we don't speak about that more so my initial reaction is it's a couple things one i'm stunned in in some respects because it is incredibly difficult to get any social outcome particularly one that's viewed as a negative and most americans tend to view you know out of wedlock non-marital births as a net negative for society it's hard to get any of those things up over 50 percent um so whether you're talking about crime rates and however high they may look in a particular city most people aren't going out committing serious crimes. Most people don't die from drug overdoses. Right, I see right? where you're going, right. But to get a statistic like that, particularly in our community, at 70%, that, that's something that you almost never see. I think the reason that people don't talk about it, particularly in, in our community, publicly, I'll draw a distinction between the conversations that um, Black folk tend to have privately and the ones that our leaders and influencers tend to have publicly. I think a big reason they don't talk about it is that many of them are afraid. I think they've seen over the years how um, certain black leaders have been, are res- what the response is when some of them talk about marriage and fatherhood and not just as general you know, social goods, but specifically um, juxtaposed with public policy. So I remember when President Obama was candidate Obama, he gave his Father's Day speech at the Black Church in Chicago, I believe. He got raked over the coals. People said he was doing it. The apostolate apostolate church, I think. Right, right. They said he was doing it to appeal to white conservatives. When he did it again, I want to say in 2013 in Chicago, after the death of a young lady named Hydea Pendleton, Yes, who had just at, been at the at his inauguration. Just so you know, I literally am writing about this in my book, Agency. I okay, literally so, uh, Adia Pendleton, Pendleton. Yes, yes. So he, he talked about the importance of marriage and family and the response to him from the African-American sort of commentariat, right? The, the intellectual class um, was you're playing respectability politics. So now we're at a point where it doesn't serve any any person, particularly on the left, to bring up marriage and family because ultimately, no matter how delicate Lee, they try to bring it up. It comes off as a criticism of black people and particularly black women who are the Democratic Party's strongest voter base. Um, So I think that there there are political reasons people don't talk about it. I think that there are cultural reasons that oftentimes we don't want to talk about it. For some people, I have no doubt that there may be some sense of shame to sort of, quote unquote, air dirty laundry. But at, at the end of the day, I can't. There's there's no version of sort of black political leadership or black progress that can be had despite the state of the family. Um, And I don't understand how we allow people who call themselves leaders to have influence in our community when they don't address the most obvious and pressing social need, both in our community and on a broader scale in in America. Um, I saw a report from Pew that said the U.S. leads all countries in the percentage of children raised by single parents. I want to say it was about 25%. Um, that's unheard of in other places. And not only that, in other countries, what tends to happen is, is that kids are raised in, you know, multi-generational families with sure. mom, and mom and dad, and then grandparents, and then aunts and uncles up the line or around the corner or in the community. And, and our, our situation is totally different. And that's why I said in my last piece that even the left will talk about more resources, more government programs, 
but the, the government is a is an unfaithful husband and an absent father because he just it just has too many households to support and he can't just it, there, there's not enough attention to go around so um I, I think it's to me it's the issue to be discussing but for whatever reason we are preoccupied with you know who's on the cover of a pancake box or some Karen in a Walmart parking lot or, you know, just trivial things. Um, so, yeah. You know, I may have, I may have mentioned before my, you know, my son was taking a black studies class in high school and, and recently shared with me that they were, they asked this, each student to examine a critical issue within the quote unquote African-American community. So he selected fatherless homes. Mm. His wife told him, you know, you should probably pick a different topic because mm. that mm. may offend some people. Mm. That's so even in high school, when you're trying to dig into an issue, mm -hmm. well, maybe that's not appropriate. You know, I said to my son, well, if someone picked police brutality, yeah, they would have been all over it. He'd be as sensitive to say, well, there are some really good police officers out there. Let's not offend right. them. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. You know, when... When Obama uh, gave that speech um, in Chicago, Hadiah Pendleton, he, you know, he talked about gun control because it was yet another killing by, by mm -hmm. firearms. But what he said was, yeah, we all talk about guns, but when, a, when a, a young person does that, they have a hole in their heart mm -hmm. that cannot be filled by laws. Yeah. yeah. So how do, we, how do you think we gain the courage because you just said something interesting. There's a public discussion and a private discussion, right? The public discussion is one in which people are very, you can't say that, but privately mm -hmm. we'll say, can you believe this is happening? Mm -hmm. How do we get the courage to make this public? Like, how does that happen? And how have you gain the confidence to write about this publicly? Um, for me personally, I think part of it is, um, as someone who hasn't sort of been trained again, I'm, I don't have a political science background or sociology background. I just tend to write the things that I think and things that I've been talking to friends and family for, for a long, long time. So me and my three best friends, like we talk about these issues. We've talked about them since we were teenagers. We talk about them with our dads and our parents. I wear my wife's, ear out she she can pretty much write every article that i pen <laughs> she's already heard it um and then, then it's just a matter of of saying it and and i try i try to be very sensitive to the to the subject matter um my approach to writing i think about it from you know using like sports metaphors i try to write the way floyd mayweather boxes which is to say to give my opponent as little surface hitting areas possible. What that means is tone down the, the, the hot rhetoric, right? Don't engage in ad hominem, stick to the issues, always come with evidence and facts because I know what the response is gonna be. It's a series of deflections, um, dismissals, people questioning your authenticity, a lot of name calling, you know, you're, you're a sellout, you're a Tom, you're a coon. Um, th those things do have an effect. And the effect is to chill speech because ultimately what people want, they prefer to um, remain comfortable rather than to be challenged. So I think part of what we need for that public discussion is more men who care more about their communities than their public reputation, um, men and women, but, but again, I always go back to who, who do I think should be responsible, and I see the defense of a community as the as the province of the men. That's who I look to first. Um, if a band of marauders came to my house, and they banged on my door, and my young daughter is the one who answers the door with the rifle, they immediately know there's a man that's absent, and I don't I don't believe in leaving, you know, the home or the community vulnerable. So I think we need people who have courage. Um, and we used to, this is, this is a new, you, I'm sure you all remember in the 90s, we had C. Dolores Tucker, we had Calvin Butts. Calvin Butts took a steamroller and, and, and rolled over a bunch of um, CDs. 
you know, gangster rap CD. So we have people who could both speak to the issues of civil rights and also speak to the issues of culture. And I think that's that's what we need right now. And we are we are missing that so terribly because I can't think of a single black leader or influencer who's accepted in sort of mainstream black society. But so the black left whose primary contribution to the culture is to talk of, is to talk and address culture. Um, I can't think of a single person. Everyone, and you all know this, everyone's go-to in their tool belt, systemic racism, racial oppression, whiteness, white supremacy, and that garment has been stretched to cover everything. So wow. the nuclear family is now whiteness, right? Wow, yeah. I thought... I thought my ideas from nuclear family came from Genesis 2. That's where I get it from. So the nuclear family is racist. Math is racist. Objectivity, um, rational thought, delayed gratification. These are all things that come under the umbrella of whiteness. And at a certain point, people have to, to get tired enough and see the impact that it's having um, on themselves and more importantly, on their children. Because, again, I, I was trained as an engineer. And when I think about the people I knew from the National Society of Black Engineers from Nesby, not a one of them would have accepted lower standards for themselves than their teachers have for their classmates. Um, so I'm not sure why we, why and when we decided to um, trade in our, our dignity and our, and our pride um, for what we see as some quick wins to to take a, a strike at, at white supremacy, quote unquote. Wow. Well, well, well articulated, my brother. Um, we have a segment uh, that'll that'll bleed right into what you were just saying. We have a segment on the podcast that we call the Speed Round, where okay. we offer up a couple of individuals or philosophies, ask you to pick one, and and tell us why. And, you know, I did a little bit of research on uh, your writing and, and philosophy, so I'm going to start with a with a, a, a fastball right down the center of the play. Okay. Which, uh, imagery or actions? Ooh, actions, actions. Yeah, um, you, you threw me off. You threw me off, Nike. I, I was expecting a different fastball. But it's okay. I can adjust to the pitch. Um, I'm I'm an actions person. Image. Imagery is extremely important. I read the book um, Bamboozled by a gentleman years ago who worked in, you know, in media. And he really laid out the case for why culture, images, music, all those things are important. And they are. But I think ultimately um, the things that are most important are the things that people do. I, I'm, I, I think about, you know, the things that will most influence, you know, my children. And I hope that it's the things that my wife and I are pouring into them, the values, the, the, the beliefs, um, you know, the, the sort of system of morality, our, our Christian faith, those things, I think, I hope are more important than, than the images that they see. Um, but those things tend to act as a sort of a protective factor, if you would, against some of those images often, which oftentimes obviously are, are very negative. So, Action j just by here. Very good. Uh, Malcolm or Martin? That's what I was expecting. Um, <laughs> uh, Martin. Martin. Um, I I so appreciate the the legacy of the civil rights movement. Um, it's it's grounding in a in in a in a a biblical worldview, um, and its ability to not just advocate for social change, but be the vehicle through which actual laws and public policy was passed. Um, and I think that's what we needed at that point in time, um, because it's hard to um, sort of live a full and fulfilled life when, when you're not an equal citizen in a country that promises freedom, but, but hasn't, hadn't really delivered it to that point. Good. And, the, and for the last one, another little twist for you. Okay. Uh, Jay-Z or Diddy? Hmm. Jay-Z or Diddy? I'd, I'd probably go Jay-Z. Um, it's interesting to see how he has changed and evolved as, as, a, as a man and as a person. 
um, including some of his very, you know, public um, difficulties in his marriage. But um, I hope that as that generation of rappers gets older, they'll find the space to talk about different things and to use their art um, to influence another generation of young, particularly young men, to influence them in a, in a different direction. And I see Diddy as still the type to, to want to be a playboy. I see Diddy as more of a, a George Clooney type of character. Um, so I, I, would, I would go Jay-Z on that one. And if you would, just give our readers a little bit. I've read a little bit about what you said about uh, Sean Combs' recent um, lambasting of, of white media, quote unquote, for not yeah. supporting black media more. Just give us, give us your perspective on that. So in his background, again, uh, several uh, six highly successful, rich African-American CEOs who own media companies have recently come out and attacked, whether it's Comcast or other large media holder companies saying, you're not spending enough of your dollars, frankly, with our company. Uh, and, and But somehow that translates into you're not respecting the, the black consumer. So Yeah. Um, so so th- there are a couple of things going on, right? I, I appreciate the fact that Diddy has gone from a, a music producer to um, a, a business mogul, right? Different you know lines of business and, and different industries. I'm always off put when someone thinks that they have a right to someone else's money, just, just as a sort of general principle. Yep. Um, but I, but I understand what he, what he's doing. And I, I, he would say he's pushing for more, you know, black ownership and entrepreneurship and for companies to show that they value black lives other than just selling those products. So I understand his perspective. The part that I, that really struck me. And, and I've, I've, I wrote about this in, in my last article for the Federalist is how, and I'm not sure how to say this any other way, but this way, but oftentimes what I see is the black elite use the the pain of the black poor to extract benefits, oftentimes from white people for themselves and the black middle class. So, Oftentimes people will, will see someone doing something like this and they'll say, oh, this person is a grifter, right? This is a grift. I see it as less of a grift and more of an industry, right? Because you see different parts working in unison without, without central planning. It, so you, you actually see free market economics in the area of, of, of black pain um, and racial injustice. So what this looks like is um, an entire country captivated and saddened by the death of George Floyd last year. And in the weeks that passed, conversations about qualified immunity, about police reform, about banning chokeholds. And as those things sort of evaporate into the ether, now comes Aunt Jemima, now comes corporate board diversity, now comes we need you to spend more money on our our, um, diversity, Um, I like to, do the acronym my way, D-I-E, diversity, inclusion, and equity um, business. Now comes white fragility. Now comes Ibram Kendi X. So I, I have a visceral reaction when I see um, black elites who so casually toss out the, you know, rhetoric. They, everyone wants to talk about, and Diddy talked about the corporation have a foot on our neck, which obviously was a reference to George Floyd. People do it in other ways. They describe the, you know, not to get too political, but the Georgia voting law is, is Jim Crow 2.0. Now they don't say what's in the bill. They don't say X provision will lead to Y decrease in black voter turnout. They just know. They I'll don't throw have out, to. Right. They, don't have to. they throw out Jim Crow 2.0. Um, athletes who, who multi-million dollar athletes who say that they're working conditions, right? Because they're not getting an even revenue split, modern day slavery, people who talk about a job they don't like as a plantation. I, I don't, I don't like those types of things. I don't like those types of comparisons. Um, not because I'm afraid, I'm afraid of how they make white people feel, right? That, that's not my primary issue. It's not even because I, I don't like the language per se, I don't like them because we come from a resilient people and I don't like 
downplaying or dismissing or diminishing the things that our, our ancestors went through by comparing them to oftentimes trivial and completely unrelated issues that we're going through. Um, and that pain, whether in the past or in the present is real. And I don't think it's something to be toyed with or played with or used as a rhetorical device. So, so whenever the black elite do that, um, and it could be for financial gain, the Lieutenant governor of Virginia just compared himself and, and the allegations of sexual assault against him. He compared himself to Emmett Till. Um, whenever they do that, I think they should be called out on it because I, I think that type of behavior, particularly from people who say they value black, the black community and black lives, I think is absolutely shameful. You can make your argument. You can say corporate America, you know, we, we, we feel like you're closing us out, right? We want to be um, even the playing field. Let us compete with some of the other firms for some of your business. I get that. But you can do that without invoking the imagery of George Floyd to, to make a point. Yeah. Wow. Fonda, you're amazing, man. Um, I mean, let me ask you about this specific. So Coca-Cola, you may have seen, they have a black general counsel. Mm -hmm. He put out a letter essentially mandating that any of any vendor or partner that works with Coca-Cola, their legal counsel, I think they said a quote of at least 30% of their legal counsel has to be, I think people of color, preferably black, Mm -hmm. Otherwise, Coca-Cola is essentially going to cut them off, right? So it's so it's a massive oh. influence. And I was talking to someone. I said, "Do you is is that the answer? Is that the response to George Floyd? Because in some ways, all that's going to happen is that the black professional class is mm -hmm. you know it, it's almost like a reshuffling of the deck, increasing yes. the the upside certainly for more black professionals." but it has nothing to do with increasing the pipeline of lawyers, of more kids from low-income communities or kids of color. You know, so what, what do you think about that? Because it also just seems a very performative. It's not actually <laughs> intended to expand the pie. Like if you were genuinely yeah. interested in these outcomes. I, I think um, that sounds perfectly aligned with, you know, how, the the way the, the black elite, the black professional class, the talented 10th, um, how they operate today. I believe they see themselves as a leadership class, but in effect, what they do is they raise the, the ceiling while giving lip service to the floor. Wow. Um, and I mean, it makes everybody feel good because you can say, look, you, we have more black lawyers and doctors. And obviously I'm, I'm for that, but they do those things in the name of black liberation. And the one thing that they could do in service of, you know, low income, you know, black communities or the things that they could do is more than one thing. They often do the, the complete opposite. So I, sometimes the frustration is you, you see people um, who don't preach what they practice. Right. And this goes back to the issue of marriage and family. Anytime I've written publicly or I may post a comment on Facebook about marriage and family, you know who the people who, who write back and are most critical? The black folk who are married. These are the ones that have the Christmas morning pictures with their matching pajamas. They go up to Martha's Vineyard. I mean, they're in the, they, these, some of these folks, are, their children are going to be in debutantes and, you know. They're be, oh, yeah, they're in that, Jack and Jill. They're in Jack and, they're and Jill. Jack right? and Jill. So... I don't, I don't understand that behavior. I think part of it is um, survivor's guilt. I think particularly in, in modern black America, and I don't know if you all were watching Soul of a Nation on ABC um, the last couple of weeks, but it, it was supposed to speak to the black experience. I mean, it spoke to the black experience through the, the eyes of um, black progressives, right? So for instance, no mention of the black family, none. Mm. not as a standalone topic. They talk about TikTok and racism and tech and all sorts of other stuff. But um, one of the things that, that I think was obvious is that the through line of that series, all six parts, at least from my perspective, is that oppression and racial injustice are the defining elements of black identity in this country. And I can't think of a worse thing to 
say to someone, um, to, to a black person in America in 2021? One, because it leaves you feeling defeated. It leaves you feeling like, man, things haven't changed in 400 years. How are they going to change in the next 40 in my life? Two, it creates perverse incentives where as the actual racism recedes, you have to go further and further out to find things. And sometimes that'll create incentives for you to make things up, perceived slights. So um, NBA players upset because the people who own the team are called owners, right? Those types of things. Right. Um, and I think, again, getting back to your point about, you know, Coca-Cola, the corporations, which people used to see as um, aligned with the right, with Republicans, are now totally in line with the left. Um, it's, it's funny, I, I went back and was reading some, you know, some commentary around Citizens United and when Mitt Romney said corporations are people too. And we, you know, the fear on the left was that corporations would have too much of an influence on public policy. Now we're seeing that taking place, but we're seeing it on the other side. And the corporations, I think, are pr feel pressured to be on the right side of history. So they are willing to pay to write the check for people who are self-avowed Marxists as long as um, those indulgences mean that they get eaten last. Right, exactly. Um, so I think right. they'll, they'll do whatever they can. They'll say, look, we contributed X million dollars to racial justice. But at the end of the day, um, the black middle class is going gonna, is, is gonna to do well because the black middle class tends to get married. Um, and generally speaking, tends to stay married. I, I know, you know, obviously every marriage doesn't doesn't yeah. um, last forever. But generally, generally speaking, black college educated, upwardly mobile Americans tend to follow the success sequence, which I also which I've written about on a number of occasions. So what will happen is that we'll see a further stratification. Right. And, and more separation between, you know, the black upper class and middle class and then and the black lower class. As, as the folks on top. And, and by the know. way, also you'll see differences between the black middle class and upper class that's getting married following the success sequence and the white lower class. Right? Correct. Right. Correct. Correct. All while the black middle and upper claims to be oppressed by the, by the white lower. So it, it, it's, it's a really confounding, you know, experience. I think many of these people, they neither understand King nor Marx. So when I see, you know, athletes valued at, you know, a quarter billion dollars claiming to be part of the oppressed class um, and saying that, you know, white coal miner in Eastern Kentucky is part of the oppressor class. I said, this is this doesn't this doesn't make any sense. But th that's that's where we are right now, unfortunately, with both our class analysis and, and our race analysis. Let me just ask you a question about, about sports, because we made several sports analogies this sure. whole year. And you wrote in one of your pieces, actually, looking at like the meritocracy in sports, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Like sports, we actually accept that they're differential outcomes mm -hmm. based on performance. Right. You know, that there, you know, there's all sorts of efforts to level the playing field in terms of opportunity but we accept that there's only one winner at the end of the game why, why do you think we, that there isn't that transferability to any other aspect of being comfortable that there are differing outcomes i think part of it is people don't don't see it that way i think part of it is that people don't um the current ways that we describe talk about race are so toxic it leaves it makes a person feel like all white people are on top and all black people are on bottom. So if you were to ask someone, well, why don't you name a social outcome in which whites are doing worse? I think the average you know, person would struggle to, to think about that uh, or would struggle to come up with an answer um, because so much of our focus on black America is about our perceived deficits. So people don't think about areas in, in which we win. The other piece, honestly, is that people like sports and no one wants to watch a league of middle aged pudgy guys shooting the ball or, or running. We accept um, for, for whatever reason, and I guess this is to your point that the, the best we accept 
meritocracy in sports and entertainment in ways we don't in academics. Now, someone will, will respond, well, every kid has to go to school. Every kid doesn't have to play sports, and that's fine. But the principle is there. And the reason that I wrote that, pe that section is because um, I wanted people to think about the things that they're asking for currently as it relates to equity. And we all know they'll say, well, we, when we say equity, we mean equality of opportunity. But that's not the case because um, the measurement is always taken at the outcome yes, level. Correct. Right. So we see disparities in outcome between um, his, uh, black and Hispanic and then white and Asian students. But professional sports provides the exact environment people say that they're looking for. It's literally a level playing field. Um, you have teams oftentimes with the same salary cap. And if they don't, the richer teams give money to the poor teams. In the NBA, I want to say it's a 50-50 revenue split between players and ownership. So those leagues do everything that they can to make it so that every team can compete on an even playing field. And even there, you see outcomes that don't look anywhere near even. Baseball is probably the worst where the Yankees have 27 World Series and then next team, I think, is the Cardinals. They may have 11. Football has a little bit more parity. Basketball, again, the Lakers and the Celtics are out, you know, far ahead. Um, but there's hope because what you also see is that teams who've been mired at the bottom of the league, oftentimes it's because of issues of culture, culture in terms of bad management, bad leadership. Sometimes when they get new leaders, you see those teams start to rise. The New England Patriots weren't always a, a great team. They were a laughing stock, I believe, in the 70s and the 80s. But when you have the same owner, head coach slash general manager and quarterback working in unison for 20 years, you can win six championships, right? And I think the hope there is that um, as Americans, if we start to look at some of these issues we're facing through a cultural lens, and that's difficult because it's hard for Americans to, to even hear the word culture without jumping to race, right? And the distinction I make is culture talks about what's prevalent, right? So certain things are more normal in certain communities than in others, right? And race, to the extent that we talk about race, right? I think biblically about that, one human race, many ethnicities, many nationalities. But to the extent that we talk about it the way we do, those are things that are inherent. That would be the same whether I was raised sure. in Russia by adopted family or raised in Mexico. So the, the, the number of things that actually are racial in nature, inherent in nature, is very, very small. Almost everything else is cultural. And the good thing is that you can change culture over time. There was a time where people smoke cigarettes on big screen. Eventually we said the health outcomes are too bad. We're not showing that to, to young kids anymore. And I think the same potential is there in the education space. If we had a commitment to, to meritocracy and particularly if black folks understood that having standards lowered in the name of progress for us is not just a slap in the face to our ancestors, who went to schools in, in you know, one room um, schoolhouses and, and, and studied as hard as they could and, and did all they could to provide a better life for us. But it's a slap in the face to our descendants because it's impossible to lower standards and raise performance at the same time. Um, and that goes back to the sports analogy. No one would, would, would watch the NBA if different ethnicities got a rim at a different height. So, so okay, you know, uh, the Asian players coming down, let's lower it down to nine and a half feet. Okay, black guys are coming back up the court. Let's put it to 11 feet. No, and I, and I think we should do the same thing as it relates to education because I, I believe every child can learn. And Ian, I, I, that's why I appreciate the work that you've done so much um, because I don't believe that children are bound by their zip code or, or their melanin count. Okay. Okay. Well, I, 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 I don't you have another question, but I, I, I have two more. One is true. Um, one shoot. is, one is related to our young man, Daryl. Um, as you know, mm -hmm. um, we, Nike and I, we created a character 30 years ago, Daryl, cause you know, we thought young men and now increasingly young men of all races, but 16 years old, they may not be seeing people like you. 
um, Delano in their lives frequently enough, saying exactly what you just said, which is that, of course, you've got the capacity to achieve at the highest level. Given everything that you know, given the dominant narrative that you're hearing, what would be your advice to a Daryl, to a 16-year-old who's just trying to figure out his way in the world? Yeah. Um, Daryl. So if, if I was talking to Daryl, um, I would tell Daryl to, to try his best in school, work as hard as he can. But my, my advice to Daryl would focus on a couple of things because this is the advice I would have wanted at the same age. I would want to see Daryl grounded in something bigger and higher than himself. Um, I think there's way too much navel gazing in our country right now. Way too much language of personal therapy. Everybody's offended. Every So I, I'd want Daryl to, to see himself as um, a created being, created in God's image, fearfully and wonderfully made so that when people start to speak against that, whether they look like him or not, um, he would re remember not just who he is, but whose he is. So that's one. Wow. I'd also want Daryl to get married way earlier than most people tell him he should. I don't want Daryl to be 65 walking down the aisle for the first time. And, you know, it, I, in a perfect world, I'd want Daryl to, to find a good woman they get married, they have their children, mid-20s, late-20s, whatever it is. And for Daryl to pour and his wife to pour into his children um, the types of, of, you know, values that um, have allowed him to succeed. Um, if you asked me this question, I would have said, I, I want Daryl to try to get into the best Ivy League school he can get into. Increasingly, I may prefer Daryl to, to pick up a trade because um, in many of the schools, particularly outside of the hard sciences, um, Daryl is going to hear things from people who say they're acting in his best interests that will only leave him deflated and defeated. Mm. And I don't think that's good for him because I wouldn't want him to pass that on to the next generation. So if Daryl focuses on his faith and his family and his community, um, he can still be an intellectual. He can still read all the great books. Um, if he wants to do what me and my family, we decide to do, which is homeschool his children to, to, to not, um, as a way to protect and prepare his children for the world that's to come so that they are not gobbled up by the indoctrination that is so common in a lot of K through 12 schools. I'd also advise that if he was open to that. Yeah. But but I, I would want to see Daryl um, be more concerned about the man he is in his house than the man that's in that's in the White House. Um, so that that would be my advice to Daryl. Wonderful. Okay. Um, uh, what's next for you? Um, it's a good question. Um, I'm not sure. Um, I'm working on a new article for the Federalist about why America needs strong men now more than ever. Um, so I'm going to put some work in on that. I've, I've have different, you know, interests, um, interested in sitting for my real estate license. Uh, uh, I'd love to do more writing and, and speaking and thinking about a podcast and thinking about different opportunities. But, um, as, as of right now, I, I just try to, you know, love on my kids. They're young, you know, five, two, and one. Um, love on my wife, um, you know, participate and, and, and put down some roots in a, in a new church home and try to do what I can, you know, to, for the best of my community. So um, it, this is one of those points in life where, because as I said, I mentioned earlier, I don't talk a lot about, you know, my day job primarily because, you know, some of the things I write may not sit well with the people <laughs> that I work with. But um, th the last five years have been very enlightening for me. I honestly thought that I was going to be a career civil servant, which I have no problem with. I'm not knocking it at all. 
Uh, most of the, the people I came up with have worked in government at one point or another and oftentimes had long careers. But I didn't realize that there was a marketplace for some of the ideas that I have and the things that I want to share. And now that I see that there is, I, I'd like to push that um, as, as far as possible. And um, I'm, I'm thankful that some of the doors that I hoped had opened actually did not. And I won't go down the long list of companies who rejected me, but um, it, I think it's, it's all been, been for the good. So I'm just going to continue to, to um, you know, work the little land that I have here and, and you know, see what, what grows from it. Okay. Well, Delano Squires, thank you very, very, very much. Thank you, guys. You are, you are um, your, your voice is extremely important. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, Delano, I'll tell you that an engineering degree did not go to waste because <laughs> dissect and analyze and consider uh, the world and our reality. I, I can see it. I can see it working and operating, and it provides you a very unique perch with which to talk about these issues. So I definitely celebrate you, and um, I love all those things you're looking at. Um, very exciting. Yeah, th thank you guys. Ian, Nike, I, I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm big fans of your work, and it, it's been an honor to talk to both of you and to sit in the square that Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter and Bob Woodson and some of the other folks at 1776 Unites have, have, have sat in. So um, I appreciate the opportunity and, and hope we could, you know, stay in touch and, and do some work together soon. Absolutely. Well, thank you all. Thank you, Delano. Thanks, Nike. Thank you to our viewers uh, for watching the latest episode of The Invisible Men. If you're interested in seeing other episodes, everything is available at www.invisible.men. And uh, Black Excellence, we just had a great dose of it. Thank you. Thank you for watching another episode of The Invisible Men. You can find other episodes at the AEI podcast channel on YouTube or the website invisible.men or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.